This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. <laughs> um, welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Old City of Jerusalem at Asha Torah, across from the Temple Mount. Um, what? Yeah, it's on, yeah. Okay, so... Anyway, uh, one amazing thing, just amazing thing, and this was kind of the punchline of a class of mine, and, and we don't have to discuss this, but it was just something amazing that came out, was people who have no idea what they're living for are scared to death of death, and people who do know what they're living for kind of can't wait. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding about the can't wait part, but, they, but they're just not afraid of death. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense, if you think of it, and I'm going to say it again. Would you mind bringing me two cups of water, please? So, um, so again, I'll say it again, that people who don't know what they're living for are scared to death of death, and people who do know what they're living for are not afraid of death. Now, this sounds strange, and let me explain why it's strange, and there are reasons it makes sense, and we'll explain those too. But the, one of the reasons why it's strange is because, because if, you're, if you don't know what you're living for, so then what's your life like? What's life like when you don't know what you're living for? Yeah, it's kind of what? Say it louder. It's kind of meaningless, chaotic. right? Chaotic. chaotic, meaningless. It's kind of, thank you so much. Confusing. It'd be, like, it'd be like really wanting to take a drive in your car with no idea where you're going to go, which might be a lot of fun for like the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But then it would get weird. You know, it just be kind of like, okay, green light, you know, and you know, it doesn't matter if you make a U-turn, by the way, because you have no idea where you're going anyway, so like, you can just make a U-turn and drive for 10 more minutes and make a U-turn again, I mean, what's the difference? Maybe just go back and forth on your own street, you know, at least till the cops come, and so, so it's kind of meaningless, so your life's meaningless, which means death should be like a pretty good option, right, because then you're out. And you're out. So if life's meaningless, so death would be probably the best conclusion. And then there is people whose lives are like filled with meaning and they like they know exactly what they're here for and they're just totally like doing it. So that means their life is packed with meaning and death would be the end of all that. Death would end that. And that would be a bummer. That would be a bummer. You know, this shows up in army a lot and uh, with soldiers, combat soldiers have this issue. Meaning, if you have a combat soldier who really believes in the cause, they're not just drafted and like kind of paying their dues, but they're someone who really believes in the cause. So for them to be on the battlefield and performing, peak performance on the battlefield is, is pretty good because they would die doing what they care about. That's what they're there for. They're there, they care. They join the army. It's something they care deeply about. And, and they realize, obviously, going into battle that they may die doing this and that it's not such a big deal because they're dying doing what brings meaning to them. So it's like, it's not so bad. Whereas someone who has no interest in that, they're just simply drafted and they're paying their dues by being in the army right now. So that person, every second they're on that battlefield is risking stuff they might have had on their bucket list. For example... Trip to South America. Uh, maybe they always wanted to own a home, or maybe there was a car they were they were interested in, or maybe they're they're into climbing and they always wanted to hit Everest, or they're into surfing and they want to surf Jeffrey's Bay, South Africa, or something like that, or Indonesia. So 
so they so every second on that battlefield is is bad news, and and they they just don't want to die there. But it's the same exact scenario we set up in the first place, and that is that when people have meaning, they don't mind dying. And when people don't have meaning, dying's really really not good. You know, we don't we don't want to die. So let me uh, see if I can unravel this a little bit. You want to help me unravel it, please? Uh, no, I, I, I want to add I to was it. Because I kind of disagree. Please, please. It's perfect timing. Someone who does, <laughs> Before I elaborate. No, just while I was thinking, someone who doesn't have meaning, it's not that they chose not to mean, they're waiting for something that will give their life meaning. So if they die now, then their whole life was a waste because they haven't yet found the uh, thing that they're assuming. You know, maybe they should take action. It's not worth you. Excellent, excellent. Which, if we can all sing together um, from Bono, yeah? Uh, from uh, you two, everyone ready? One, two, three, and I still haven't found. Where are you guys? Come on. What I'm looking for. I have climbed highest mountains. I have. Yeah. So, so still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's right. Dying, having having not found what you're looking for, it would be a bummer. Big bummer. And I think all of us deep down, and can you mind if I just go on that for a second? I think all of us deep down, there's a spot right here if you want to grab it, bro. I think all of us deep down believe that there's going to be something out there. Like there's going to be some answer to what we're doing here as individuals. And that's a double thing because there's one, what, is humans, what are humans doing here and what are you doing here? Those are two very important things you've got to answer both. What are humans doing here? What are you doing here? And we all believe there's an answer to that, but boy, is it hard to find. It's really elusive. And, and when we try to go for it, we try different things. You know, you try religion. And religion asks, answers pretty well what we're doing here, but it doesn't answer much about what you're doing here. Even Judaism falls short on that. You know, Judaism will give you great, great content on, like, how to live your life as a Jew. But what you're doing here as an individual... Not so many pointers. Not so much pointing in that direction. So even Judaism falls short on that. Um, so a lot of people try religion. Some people think university is going to be helpful, but I, I can save you some time. <laughs> it's not going to be helpful. In fact, I even, uh, you know, I, I left school when I was 11. Okay? The, the next time I was actually in a classroom in a serious capacity was when I was 23 years old here at Asia Torah, you know, which was 12 years later. And many brain cells less. And the, uh, but I went on this amazing wild journey to discover things. And it turned out that one year, it was, uh, how old was I? I think I was 22 years old. I think I was 22. And I said, you know what? I feel like I've turned over every rock to look for meaning in life. And I've failed completely. And I said, but there's one rock I never overturned. And that was academia. So I said, what if I actually, and I was in Santa Barbara at the time, where there was a university, it was called UCSB, stands for You Can Study Buzzed, and so I was surfing full-time in living in Santa Barbara, and I said, you know, I'm right near the campus, what if I go on campus and I actually study meaning, like find meaning? I'll check it out. So I went into the philosophy department. I actually spent a whole winter doing this, three quarters. They're in the quarter system. In my third quarter, I finally got to, like, the ultimate. I was with all graduate students. I, I somehow was instantly a graduate student, uh, not enrolled, obviously. 
And, uh, and I was in the graduate department in the top level of the philosophy department, which is called, um, the class was called deconstructionism. Deconstructionism is nasty stuff. It's where you deconstruct the meaning of all things because everything's meaningless, meaning it's based on the supposition that the whole world's absolutely meaningless, and therefore you make your meaning, which is basic existentialism. You know, exist, existence, existentialism, like what's the nature of existence? So the answer is that it's meaningless, that existence is meaningless. It's very nihilistic. It's very academic nihilism. And, but deconstructionism is like, it's like militant meaninglessness. You know, like, for example, uh, one of the papers we were given, and I was writing the papers, too, even though they were like, who the hell are you? So I was writing the papers, and uh, I was given an assignment. The professor gave me a personal assignment. I had to write a, um, I had to, um, you know the book Moby Dick, written by uh, Herman Shelley? I think it's written by Herman, Sh uh, Melville, Herman Melville. Um, so I had to do a midget, midget lesbian reading of Moby Dick, sure. but, meaning who cares what Herman Melville meant, you know, like that, I had to get into the head of a midget lesbian and, and just reread Moby Dick and send it in as a paper that would be graded on my ability to get into the meaning of the, that person, but literally that who cares what Herman Melville had to say about his own book, which he clearly was trying to convey something to us from his perspective. But there's no such thing as a perspective. There's no meaning. Now, um, yeah. Who are they making you read? Like Derrida and like Foucault and stuff? Like, I don't remember the best stuff. Like, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, this is a lot of years ago, bro. <laughs> I don't mean to date myself, but uh, it's a little boring to date yourself anyway. <laughs> Much better to date someone else. So... Anyway, um, but that was it. So in the, in the bottom line is the world of academia is that meaninglessness kind of thrives there. It's a nihilism. In fact, it's become, a, I don't want to get into that right now, but it's become almost part of the left-wing, like, radical political movement. Is, it's kind of coming off that meaninglessness. It's an atheistic view. And... Uh, and not exactly going to point us in a great direction for, our, for feeling like there's greater purpose. Now, raise your hand if you were born and raised with this deep feeling in your heart that there's purpose. Raise your hand if you felt there was a purpose to existence. Not your existence, existence. And it has a purpose. Okay, very good, very good. And I had that too and was greatly disappointed, greatly disappointed and, and I could say even depressed. I would say I even got depressed at a certain point where finding out that the world was meaningless was... Uh, and by the way, it wasn't just academia. That was like the end. I came to meaninglessness on my own, but, but then got to find out that it's kind of stamped by academia, by professors and stuff, that the world's meaningless. That was very painful for me. And in fact, it wasn't more than a week or two later that I got a phone call that I had a free ticket to come to Asia Torah here in Jerusalem which like, couldn't be better timing because I'd just kind of gotten that depression. Do you know what that depression's all about? Depression and meaninglessness? Do you know about that? Because it's a major topic. It's uh, it, yeah. Well there, well, there was, no, I mean, it's a school of thought that there's a, there was a, an amazing thinker, brilliant, brilliant academic name uh, and, and a psychologist by the name of Viktor Frankl, 
who, who wrote this famous book called Man's Search for Meaning, a must-read for everybody. But he believes, now this is coming from a Jew, so I don't know if that has something to do with this, but he believed that your need for meaning, your desire, your search for meaning is, well, if it's that important to you, is going to be whether you're happy or not. It's whether you're going to be happy or not. I Meaning, I'm sure there's a couple of people in this room who don't really, don't really give a damn if the world's actually meaningful. I'm sure there's some of you who would think that'd be nice. That'd be cool. But there's others of you that if it ain't meaningful, if this world's really meaningless, that, that, that's depressing. That, that's lame. And would take away, um, that would take something away from you. It would lead you to perhaps feelings of hopelessness. Well, hopelessness and depression are good friends. Yeah, hopelessness and depression, they get along really well. And so Viktor Frankl said that, you know, okay, I'm sure there's all kinds of amazing psychological theory from Freud and all the great thinkers in psychology. But meaning, that life's meaningful is, is of the most important schools of thought, of whether things are meaningful or not, as that's going to affect your well-being in a big way. So raise your hand if you found that life being meaningful or not meaningful, you would, you would give that, uh, like you'd give that a lot of weight on how happy you are, meaningful or not meaningful. So you see, it's like the majority of the class here feels that meaning would be, would be uh, you know, a factor in happiness. And now this is unarguable that every human being seeks happiness. We all seek happiness. And it also now makes sense why people would have absolute lies be meaningful. Meaning, how many people have believed total malarkey to surplant meaning in their life, even though it was a bunch of, a bunch of uh, what does a rabbi say after he says a bunch of uh, <laughs> baloney? It also begins with bull, yeah? That it's a bunch of baloney. And, and so people have believed in baloney over the years. Now, raise your hand if you'd rather have a meaningless, sad life than believe in a bunch of baloney and be happy. Raise your hand. Meaningless, sad life? I'd rather have a meaningless, sad life than believe in a bunch of baloney. Raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Because those people raise your hand know there's still alcohol. And there's, you know, and then there, you could always get your medical marijuana card, you know, for a few giggles here and there. And uh, you also got cinema. You know, there's plenty to distract yourself with, you know, but, but distracting yourself with lies is, is that's beyond the pale. Like, I, I'd rather distract myself with, uh, with, uh, you know, other cool distractions than, uh, than believing my bunch of lies. And for this reason, you'll notice that Aish rabbis are often discussing whether Torah is true or not something that's rarely discussed, meaning if you, uh, if you go to a reformed synagogue, which I grew up doing a little bit here and there, you know, bar mitzvahs at least, I sat through the bar mitzvahs, I mean, there was a lot more bar than mitzvah, but the, uh, but the, you know, there's a spot right there, just come on around, so bar, bar mitzvahs, and I, I heard, you know, rabbi sermons, they were not bringing up whether it was true or not, and I, the synagogue I grew up in was conservative, it was called Sinaid Temple, cyanide temple it almost killed me spiritually and uh <laughs> what's up Wait a minute. you're not gonna sit there bro sit here let's be friends 
I just don't want to get whiplash trying to connect to you over there. Welcome back. I imagine you haven't been around, but yeah, welcome back. So anyway, so I went to conservative synagogue growing up, and, and which was kind of cool because I met my best friend, and we stayed together from 11 years old. You ready for this? We never left each other's side, including sleep. Either I was sleeping in his or he was sleeping in my house from 11 years old till 23. We never left each other's side, and we were roommates for the whole, like, once we were 18, we were roommates till, till I shipped off to Israel. Amazing. It was really great. And I, I, I'll never forget the day. I was, it was 11 years old. It was um, in Hebrew school. We had, um, we had uh, you know, you, you, anyone here know what I'm talking about? Sunday school, where you go to Sunday school. You know? so, so I'm in Sunday school, and it was like three hours. So there was, like, there was only so much I could take. So I would always, about halfway through, smoke a joint. And so... 11, yeah, 11 years old, yeah. I, I, we started young. This was before helicopter parents. You know, where parents are, like, kind of hovering all the time. There was no one hovering anywhere. Anywhere. There had been no one hovering since I was much younger than 11. Much younger than 11, there was no one hovering, you know. Anyway, so it was around halftime that I took my break, and every Sunday. Uh, now, I was pretty good friends with everyone in the class, except for one kid who was Persian. And... Now, I'm not racist or anything, but, but it was like the very first Persians in L.A. And so it's just a little awkward to have an 11-year-old who's, you know, went through puberty when he was nine, you know, and he's got like a full beard, and, and he's like, this guy was like, we called him the, the missing link, okay? He was like Neanderthal, you know, and so he was the one guy I paid no attention to, and I took my halfway break, go down to the bottom of the basement in the stairwell, like in the guts of this giant, giant synagogue, to have my weekly smoke, and guess who's down there doing it himself? Yeah, the missing link, yeah? The furball. So, you know, so we both just looked at each other, and we were like, we stayed locked together for the rest of, like, we're still, I mean, to this day, I mean, we're WhatsApping right this week. And we never, we never, ever, ever left each other's sides from that day on. We've been best friends. And the, the funny, just one more funny thing about it is their family was very short, meaning their boys only cleared five feet, two, three, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I think there were six at the time. And they, and they, anyway, they're really little. And I'm from this Ashkenazic family, but we go through puberty super late, like super late. Like, I don't think I went through puberty really until I was about 16, which was pretty embarrassing. And, and uh, so what happened is whenever I ate at their house and they were serving up the tagdig, you know, the burnt rice and all those big meat stews and stuff. So the husband would always say, we will grow you. We will grow you. We will grow you. And they would feed me and feed me and feed me. And I was just like, ah. This was going on for years. And so now when I go to their family events and I'm like a head taller than the entire family, so he pokes his wife in the ribs and says, we grew him. <laughs> so there's a Persian family in L.A. who take full responsibility for my height. Now, back to meaning. The, um, there was no class, by the way, all of that was just entertainment uh, because we're discussing the reforming conservative movement, not discussing whether Torah is true or not. And that's just not a discussion. Well, guess what? The observant community, which I rarely call orthodox, the observant co community, which I rarely call orthodox, 
but in this case, I'll call them Orthodox just for fun, just to poke fun, um, that the Orthodox community, anyone here ever uh, went through any education in the Orthodox community? Raise your hand if you raise your hand if you went. Okay, keep now keep your hands up. Keep your hand up if if that same community did not thoroughly treat the subject of whether Torah was true or not. So you see, it's the same hands up. They never dealt with that. Okay, you get that. So the same community. Now, what's the difference between Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox when it comes to this? And the answer is nothing. None of them deal with whether Torah is true or not. You got that? No one's dealing with the truth of Torah. But what is the... What is... By the way, that was a pact I made with a group of people. They were not coming. I always go through the lobby and try to like pry people out of their chairs to come to class. And they're like... They're like... I'm like, you can stay. When I, when I realized I lost, I said, but you can stay for 10 minutes. They're like, really? So that was them, but I told them I was going to put seats together for them, but I, it was too busy in here. Anyway, the, um, what's the difference between Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox when it comes to educating kids on whether Torah is true or not? Like going through all that battle. Like, is there a God or not? Is Torah true or not? And is the Masorah, which is the transmission from the rabbis of, you know, from thousand years ago till today, is it, is it, High fidelity, meaning is it, uh, what's the word for, is the transmission? Not clear. Accurate, let's say. Credible, accurate. Meaning, or is it broken telephone? Or is it just, you know, total broken telephone over the years? I mean, it's oral law. It was oral for a thousand years before they even wrote it down. And when you look at the stuff written down, a lot of arguments. A lot of argument going on there. So, like, now we're 2,000 years after all the arguments. Now what do we do? What Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox have in common on those three is that they don't discuss whether it's real or not, whether it's true or not. You get that? It's not discussed, not part of the plan, not part of the program. But you know what one major difference is that Reform and Conservative have over the Orthodox is that, and the Orthodox, one major difference is that Reform and Conservative don't expect you to do nothing. Nothing. Zero expectation. Meaning they don't really care if you do anything or not. It's cool. They don't care if you do anything or not. Tell me, what do the Orthodox think about whether you do something or not? Big deal or a little deal? It's the difference between shidduchim or no shidduchim. You know? it's, it's whether you will actually get a viable match for your continued genetic line. You know, the, um, it's, it's a huge deal. It's whether your kids are getting into the schools or not. It's, it's whether you're getting the job you wanted or not. It's, it's, it's about everything. So it's like huge amount of like standard, giant standard, with the same zero discussion of reforming conservative. Yeah, and not only that, but if you actually ask the rabbi and reform a conservative, let's say you're in your Hebrew school, or day school, if they have such a thing for Reform Conservative. I think there's a Solomon Schechter school, of maybe, that's a conservative day school, where you actually do to go to grade school. If you did raise your hand and say to the teacher, how do we know there's even a God? And even if we say there's a God, how do we know Torah is true? How do we know Torah is from God? That you probably would get a pretty good discussion going. 
But in the Orthodox community, to raise your hand and start with that stuff, you might get in trouble. You might get into some trouble. Yeah, you know, my daughters, whenever I bring this, one second, my, whenever I bring this up with my daughters, you know, they quote me in Yiddish. This is what the teachers say. They say, uh, they say uh, oh gosh, someone help me with Yiddish. It would be, we don't ask questions. It was Lushen Kasha on the Abishter. We don't ask co- questions of God. What's, what's the, how would you say in Yiddish? No, how do you say it in Yiddish? Nis, 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 nis frechen, shyless from the Abishter, something like that. You don't ask God questions. And so you know what I always tell my daughters? I say, you say to them, I wasn't asking God questions. I was asking you questions. But the teacher's patent answer is always like, you don't ask God questions. Oh, yeah, you could get, you could get thrown out quickly for such a thing. Okay, this lady's had a question for the longest time, so we're going to her question. Well, I think because, like, in their world, it's not even up for discussion. And they know, for sure. No kid knows That's the right. truth. No, no, she was just saying it's not, a, it's not open to discussion. That's what she's saying. Okay, now, can we think of anything more cruel... Can you think of anything more cruel than to give a large assignment to someone, any kind of assignment, but give a large, tall order assignment to someone without verifying um, why or, um, or what they'd even get for such a thing? I mean, here's kind of a crude analogy of this. Let's say right here is a big handle that obviously turns something on the other side of the wall. And someone's holding a gun up to you and saying, turn the handle. Turn the hand and just keep turning and just keep turning and just keep turning. And you're just like, you know, one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. Take the other hand, you know, and they're holding a gun up to you, so you can't really stop. Two hands, you know, like. And you're allowed to talk to the guy, so you're like, come on, man, like, what's on the other side of this wall? And he's like, I'm not telling you. And you're sitting there going like, oh man. Now, first of all, if it's if it's moving a machine gun that's mowing down innocent people, so I, then I'll take the bullet. I'd rather die than do that. If it's stirring uh, a giant pot of, uh, of grains for starving children so you can take away the gun, I'll keep going. You know, I don't mind turning a crank for starving kids. You know, that's fine. But what if on the other side of it is just a, you know, just a little thing spinning and nothing's going on on the other side of there? <laughs> so, so people are being asked to do stuff that just doesn't, it's not meaningful yet. Because until you get your answers, it's not meaningful. It reminds me of my eight-year-old boy who, thank God, last week, we got a lot of time together last week. So we're, we're, I was with my eight-year-old and, um, and we were together and he finally says to me, he used the language who says because he was translating Hebrew. Because Hebrew is like Miomer, Miomer, or Miamar. So he says, who says, because he was, we're in Mishnah, we were learning a, a, a quote of Rabbi Gamliel, one of the great rabbis from 2,000 years ago. He says, who says Rabbi Gamliel is saying truth? And who says there even was Rabbi Gamliel? I Meaning maybe someone made up that there's even Rabbi Gamliel. Who says this isn't just Donald Duck? And then I'm like, I'm like, yeah, okay. And then he's like, and anyway, 
so I told him, I said, I said, well, there, that, that's the oral tradition. It comes from the Torah. Well, he says, well, who says the Torah is true? Who says the Torah is even the word of God? Like, how do we, this is my eight-year-old boy, he's so cute. How do we know that he, that's even true? Who says the Torah is even true? Who says it's not just Donald Duck? <laughs> and I'm like, well, for that matter, you might as well ask about God. And he's like, yeah, who says there's a God? Who says it's even true there's a God? Who says that's not just Donald Duck? And I was just like, I was just like, yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Asha. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an eight-year-old with these questions. Why? Because you can't teach the answers to those questions if they ain't got the question. You understand? You don't want to, they already got enough shoved down their throat. You don't want to shove down the most important questions down their throat. So the answers to that question are super important. But the question's even more important because the answer is meaningless without the question. And thank God at eight years old, he's got the question. And so we've begun a long journey, the two of us have gone a long journey. And he's already cool with the God thing, because that's where we started the journey. We did the four-second proof of God, first of all. You guys know the four-second proof of God? No, no, four, the four seconds Rambam. Not with an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, the Rambam. What's the four-second Four-second proof of God, it's, it's very simple. Just to give you a little background on the four-second proof of God, just so you all get it, the, um, is that that n- it's just that nothing makes nothing. You just got to get that part. I, I did it with Julius the other day, right? I'll give it to you real simple. Let's just say there's nothing in the room. We get rid of absolutely everything. We seal off the room. It's boarded up. You can't get anything in. We've removed also all dust. We've hermetically sealed it, and it is sanitary of anything. Now, what would be there if we opened it up a year later? What would be there? Nothing. Everyone say nothing. 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 What about 10 years later? Nothing. A million years later? Nothing. There would never be anything. Why? Because what does nothing make? <clears throat> nothing. Nothing makes nothing. Okay? Nothing makes nothing. So here's the four-second proof of God. Before there was something, there was nothing. nothing. And since nothing makes nothing. nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Now, I did that slowly. It was more like six seconds. But the four-second version goes like this. Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Okay? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, but in this case, nothing made something. So we call that God. We don't know what it is. It's not made of anything. Can you put that on the board, No way. No way. No way. You can do it later. Though. Anyway, I can break it in parts if you want. Before there was something, what was there? Nothing. Now, of course, in, phys- in uh, theoretical physics, that's a major discussion. Major discussion. But there's a reason why it's called theoretical physics. Why? Why is it called theoretical physics? Nothing is proved. Well, yeah, uh, good luck proving it. Good luck proving that. What would you need to prove it in hard sciences? Not theory, hard science. You would need an instrument of measure that measures beyond space and time. Now, what measures something, what measures something beyond space and time? The answer is nothing. Now, the funny thing is some people, you know how some people say, well, science just hasn't figured that out yet? You know when people say that? Science hasn't figured it out yet? You're only allowed to say that when science has actually made some evolutionary steps in the process of figuring it out. How, many, how far has science come to measuring things outside space and time at this point? How far has they gone? We'll ask a physical, <laughs> theoretical physicist. Nowhere. nowhere. They've gone Nowhere. So therefore, saying, well, science just hasn't figured it out yet is not a viable statement because they've gone nowhere in all of the history of science. 
because you'd need an instrument of measure that measures something outside time and space. Now, so before there was something, there was nothing. And nothing makes nothing. Nothing makes nothing. It should have stayed that way. Nothing should have always stayed nothing. But it didn't. It made... It, it, now, you might say, why am I saying it made it? It's because there was absolutely nothing, and then there was something. So, therefore, whatever that nothing is seems to have intention. Because if it was truly nothing, it would remain nothing. So it's, it has intention. It also has um, ability, because we're inside this amazing, expanding universe. So it has ability. And then expanding things, what do they generally fall into? What do things that expand fall into? begins with a C, H, chaos. It becomes more chaotic. But in this case, we have an expanding universe that actually has an incredible amount of order involved. Tremendous order. And that's why we're here right now. So there's different names of God for this. The Yud in the hay and the Vav in the hay of God's name is the expansive name of God. And the doorpost has a, has a you know, doorpost mezuzahs have the, the words Shin, Dalad, Yud. It's another name of God. Shin, Dalad, Yud, the Shin is a prefix that means that. Shh. Sorry. I'm not telling you to be quiet. I'm saying the sound. Shh. And then the second syllable is die. What's the word die mean in Hebrew? Enough. That, it's enough. It's, that's the ordering aspect of one. That's one of God's names. You know, all of God's names are verbs. They're all verbs. Every name of God is a verb describing how God interacts with creation. So the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He is the expanding of creation. And the Shin and the Dalit and the Yud is the contraction of creation. Because there's a great contractive element to creation. The reason it's on our doorposts is because in your home you can create an environment, a sanctuary of sanctity. You can create what's called a Torah home. But the second you leave your home, there's no rules out there. I mean, that's not up to you anymore. And so we have at our doorway the limiter name of God, the Shin and the Dalit and the Yud. And we touch it and kiss our hand. But when we touch it, from now on when you touch it, you should go like this. Just go like... And then go out there into the public. So that way when billboards are saying, like, you should buy this or you're really ugly, or, or you know, whatever millions of other things are going on out there that, you know, we're feeling, like, pressure from. So we always remember that it's an illusion. It's just one big illusion. And we are connected to the, the we're connected to the, creator of the illusion like for example see this bright light coming down right here just turn that a little see this bright light come down turn it towards me um perfect so you'll see this bright light is hitting the board down here and uh and what happens is i'm now going to block some of that light do you see the reflection of my fingers there yeah you see sorry not the reflection the shadow can you see the board anyway there's a shadow there you see that so that shadow is made of the absence of light. It's made of an absence of light. So God is causing light. He's the illuminator of the creation. And via all these worlds, these, 
these intermediary worlds. This is how light energy becomes matter. Do you know one of the biggest discussions in um, one of the biggest discussions in physics and in uh, science is how does light energy become matter? Well, we got right here. We got light energy. There's a light shining in, and here we've got this image of shadow underneath. So that's the question in physics: How does light energy become matter? And in science, that's up to theory because it's really hard to do anything but theorize such stuff. Whereas in Judaism, we have a massive, massive amount of Kabbalistic writings in what's called the doctrine of Tzimtzum, which is exactly as it sounds, Tzimtzum, which means to contract, contraction, where that infinite light, which is ethereal, it's not made of any physical photons of light, we're talking about ethereal light, is, is mitzumtzam, is contracted through parallel realms. These are the same parallel realms where at the bottom levels of the parallel realms is where people involved in psychedelic plant medicines are, are able to visit. Like they are, they are, the bottom realms are visitable. You can visit those realms. So like, you, meaning when I said, is there an instrument of measure that measures things outside space and time? The answer was yes. Magic mushrooms. <laughs> there is an instrument of measure. But good luck administ- admin- uh, admitting that into, as a scientific paper of what you saw having eaten a piece of fungus. <coughs> it's just not going to hold a lot of water. So anyway, the, uh, so that what happens is there is infinite light. It's being, it's being occulted or veiled by those worlds which then creates the image. Now, watch this. Uh, excuse me, sir. Do you mind turning off the lights for a second? Yeah, sure. Just right, top, top button, yeah. Watch my hand. Everyone look. See, you thought that the shadow was as a result of my hand being on the board, but it wasn't. It was made of the light itself. Meaning, you see, my hands are still there, but the shadow's gone. You can turn it back on. Thank you very much. So now it's back. And so... So too, God is not only the emitter of the light, but he's, he's also the shadow. He's, he's not just the light, he's, the, he's the, the veiling of that light. He's both. And, that, and hence you saw that when, I, when we turned off the light, even though my hand remained in the same position, you also lose the, you lose the image. Because God is both the emanator, the ma'atzil, and he's also the, the occulter, the veiler of that light. And those veils are called Shin Dalet and Yud. That's the name of God that is the ordering God, name of God. On its higher levels, it's got another word, which is hosts, which is funny. But, you know, you'll see sometimes it'll say um, Hashem Tzafakos, which means the Lord of hosts. Now, when you're reading that, you're thinking like maybe he's the Lord of like Shabbos hosts on Friday night. Like I, I also need a, should I pray to the Lord of hosts? You know, that I get a good meal this Shabbos night to the Lord of hosts? No, but what it's talking about there is that there's hosts? Same way, hosts. Yeah, by the way, please remind me everyone, we feed a family every Thursday and today's Thursday. And we've got a... Uh, Basically, if we give them bills, they eat meat. If we give them change, they get drinks. So, but every Thursday for like years, we've been feeding a family. So, everyone remind me at the end. Will you remind? Who's good at reminding me? 
because sometimes I just forget we all walk out and they starve. You, you remind me? Okay, so at the end of class, we'll uh, pass around a cup and everyone slide in a so 10s, 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s. Uh, do we have 60 shekel bills? Anyway, what's amazing is live feed people send me money for them sometimes, which is very sweet. Some guy just handed me, like a couple weeks ago, they handed me a couple hundred bucks. What, they handed me like 300 bucks or something. Like, give that to the family, which is nice. And, they, and he gave me another 300 to pay for the live feeds. These, are, these things are 100 shekels a pop on me. So feel free to sponsor live feed. Now, the, um, where are we at? Someone catch me up, because we're talking about meaning. Ah. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I did basically with you guys just now is I caught you up with my eight-year-old. Because so far we've done God. And the next thing we're going to do is Torah. And then the next thing we're going to do is Masara, the tradition, the transmission. Not knowing if these are true or not is cruel. It's cruel to our children. It's cruel to the students. We are being expected to do a tremendous amount. Judaism requires a tremendous amount. It needs verification. I'm not saying you should have your, your whole entire worldview rest on scientific verification. I mean, there's a lot of room for, for just uh, emuna. What would we? How would we look at that? It would be like this. If this is evidence... And, and this is, um, you know, this is evidence, and this is not, this is absolute knowledge here. We'll call this absolute knowledge. And this would be uh, knowledge. And this would be here, uh, what's called deductive knowledge, which is all we need. Deductive knowledge. This is all deductive knowledge from here down is all deductive. We call that deductive knowledge. So no one's expecting you to have absolute knowledge that there's a God. You get that? No one's expecting that. When the Torah commands us to know there's a God, it's not absolute knowledge. It's commanding us. That's ridiculous. <laughs> how are you supposed to do that? You're finite. With a finite mind, thinking about an infinite being. Like, how are you ever going to have absolute knowledge like you have five fingers? Like, you can have absolute knowledge, you have five fingers, but you can't have absolute knowledge as a God. It's an ethereal thing we're talking about, or lack of thing. <laughs> to the point where in Hebrew we call it nothing. Ayin. He's called ayin with an aleph. Ayin. How'd you say, you said it nicely the other day. You, how'd you translate the word ain? There is not. What? There is no. His name's There is no. There is no. You can finish the sentence however you want. There's no way to know. There's no way to understand it. There's no way to get your head around it. There's no. There is no is his name. Ayin. Ayin, but not with an ayin. Ayin with an aleph. Or ain sof, it could be called. So deductive knowledge is where we live our lives anyway. I mean, everyone who flew here, raise your hand if you flew to Israel. Did you know the plane was going to get you here? No, you deduced it, and you got on the plane. You risked your life. Yeah, people invest money all the time. They know. You don't know. You take, it's probability. You, well, you gather evidence, and you do your best, and you invest your money. When you get married, are you going to know? Well, maybe if you're a female and you got great intuition. But <laughs> the men aren't going to know. 
You know, we're just like, I, I guess, you know. So that's deductive knowledge. And that's where we live. That's how we make our, that's how we live our lives. We always live that. I, you know, if you're in a car, that's deductive. You're risking your life for deductive knowledge, which is fine. No big deal. So what happens is, let's say you gather quite a bit of evidence in Judaism and you decide, you know what, that's it. I've gotten this much evidence and I'm in. I'm going to keep the Torah, I'm going to keep Shabbat, I'm going to keep kosher, I'm going to keep everything because I've got enough evidence to know that this is real. And it may even be comparative. Meaning, it, may not, it may be like, okay, as far as I can tell, it's real, but it's, a, but it's like a million times more real than anything else in my lifestyle. I'll give you an example of that. I, I sent home a 25-page letter. Do you remember they used to have letters? You'd take out a pen and paper and write. So I sent a letter. This was before internet. I sent a 25-page letter to my oldest brother, Sam. With, and it was a manifesto of every reason why I'm keeping Torah. Having to do with God, Torah, transmission, everything. Every reason why. And I said, please send me a letter back why you keep your secular lifestyle that we grew up with. And he sent me back a one-letter, a one-line letter. You know what it said? It was how we were raised. So sometimes it's comparative. Sometimes you have that amount of evidence compared to nothing. Because we were just raised a certain way. And so that's enough to say I'm in to deduce that this is real and that this is true. That you can have that amount of evidence and be in. Now, I got a question for you. What is this area here? What is the area, this, we're going to end with this. What is this area here between this spot here and this spot here? What would you call that? You could call that Imuna. It's whatever Imuna's left. You could call it Imuna. Then Imuna is whatever's left. Meaning you have to have enough evidence to keep Shabbat, but then it's a question of Imuna is beyond the evidence that's available to us. But between that, filling in that gap with Imuna, first of all, never cheat yourself. You've got to have proper evidence. Once you get your evidence to say, hey, I'm in, that's great. Now you're in. But then whatever's left, that's going to be your Imuna. That's going to be Amuna. Now, by the way, this isn't really 100% accurate because in truth, Amuna is the whole thing. Amuna is evidence plus, plus the stuff you can't find out. The stuff that's beyond human... Com- by the way, this is beyond human comprehension. In a scientific world, this would be whatever's beyond human comprehension. Now, we're not discussing science here. This could be a high school dropout. It's going to be here. Well, that's enough evidence for me. You know, and someone with a couple of PhDs might be up there. But that gap, because you're never going to get to absolute knowledge on a being that's beyond, you know, human comprehension. It's outside time and space. It's way beyond. And that's, that's where you'll have some, some amuna. That's where your amuna is there. But altogether, we call amuna. We don't have an English word for amuna, so we just, that's your knowing there's God. Okay, everyone. Shalom. Shkoyach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.